electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, a monster rally on Wall Street with the S&P and Dow both posting record closes. The Dow ending less than 50 points from the 30,000 mark and marking its first record close since February. But does the rally last into year end? We've got some answers. Plus, legendary technical analyst Louise Yamada will join us to tell us why she is urging caution for big tech, the chart she's got her eyes on. And a big deal in the banking sector, sending shares of Spain's BBV and B- BBVA excuse me, soaring today. What it says about consolidation in the space. But we start off with that breaking news out of Moderna that sent stocks soaring today. Meg Terrell's got all the details. Hey, Meg. Hey, Melissa. Well, the bar was very high for Moderna coming into this week after Pfizer's 90% efficacy result for its COVID vaccine last week. Moderna met that bar, 94.5% efficacy shown in its phase three trial at that interim look. Now, they saw no significant safety issues in the trial, and they said they were going to seek the FDA's emergency use authorization within the coming weeks. Now, we just talked with Dr. Monsef Slawi, who's been leading the vaccine and drug development as part of Operation Warp Speed, about the significance of this moment, really seeing two vaccines in a row at this high level of efficacy. Here's what he said. It is an extraordinary outcome, frankly, to have two different vaccines tested in different conditions by two different companies uh, developed independently yield very similar outcomes. This gives a huge confidence into the data obtained and really suggests that the 90 percent and more efficacy is, is true and real. But of course, Melissa, as we're getting this extremely good news, it comes at a time in the pandemic when we've never been seeing more daily cases. Uh, We're seeing 140,000 a day on average right now. And we are seeing more and more people go into the hospital as well. Currently, 69,000 people hospitalized with COVID-19. The numbers of deaths in the United States have started to increase as well. Now we're at a seven-day average of about 1,100 deaths per day. And Melissa, public health experts are very worried about next week when a lot of folks are set to travel and get together around the Thanksgiving holiday. So Monsef Slawi saying these vaccines are showing great results, but until we get them and we get enough for everybody, which will be early to mid next year, we need to show resilience right now. Mel? Yeah, I don't I don't think there, there's a coincidence in seeing the spike a couple weeks after Halloween. Um, it probably happened because of parties, et cetera, and gatherings. But, but Meg, in terms of the differences between the vaccines and the trials themselves, was Moderna's trial, did it include a, a broader sample of, of people in terms of older people, more racially diverse? They made a big, uh, you know, big effort to include more racially diverse populations. They certainly did, and even at one point said that they were slowing their enrollment in the trials to make sure that they included people of diverse backgrounds, and particularly people who, because of their 
their jobs are more at risk of getting the disease. Um, but both companies made a big effort to enroll diverse populations and older populations. We didn't get to see the data on Pfizer's yet in older people and people of diverse backgrounds. Um, Moderna did present some data there. We don't have enough to make strong conclusions, but it did suggest with only five infections in the entire trial and more people who were over 65 or had diverse backgrounds um, who were uh, among those who got infected in the trial suggested, um, you know, there were only, sorry, five on uh, on the vaccine who, who got infected. So anyway, the split indicates it's probably protective across those groups. Yeah. And for, for Moderna, Meg, there were other drugs in the pipeline for that company based on this mRNA technology, correct? So I would imagine that this is giving investors more hope that the other parts of their franchise are actually going to work. Yeah, Moderna's been around for 10 years and they've been working on many different vaccines and other therapeutic areas. But this one just, of course, leapfrogged everything else and made them a commercial company if they get FDA's go-ahead later this year so much sooner than they expected. And so they've got vaccines for other diseases. They're starting to work on flu. Uh, and so this is very validating. And they, they see this as, of course, a huge day for the company in addition to this huge day in trying to stop this pandemic. All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Keeping on top of all of these developments, um, let's hope that it's Vaccine Monday from all the Mondays uh, from now on. Guy Dami, I know you, you're pointing out the uh, Pfizer trade. I, I want to get to the broader markets in just a minute, but before we leave that, I want to trade these stocks. We had some very, very interesting moves in, in Pfizer in particular and also Moderna. It's interesting in Pfizer, Mel. I mean, Pfizer, when it spiked up on their news last Monday, I think it was north of $42.00. And it traded there from, I think, a 38 close the prior Friday or thereabouts. And you look at the stock today, it's actually lower than that. And it's done it on, you know, pretty interesting volume over the last week or so. So one of the things we've said for a while, I think correctly, is these aren't the places necessarily to go if there's success. Karen's pointed this out a number of times that it's not the pharmaceutical names you want to be in if there's a vaccine. It's these downstream names like travel stocks, like the casinos. Uh, like the cruise line. So she's been right on that. So I find it fascinating that Pfizer is actually lower. You look at Moderna today, and our big beef with Moderna five or six months ago when they priced that secondary around $73 or so, wasn't that they did it, but they did it um, based on the fact that they thought they were going to be successful. They want to get in front of their logistics and distribution and manufacturing of the drug. My point then was if they were going to be successful, the stock would be closer to $100 that would be the price to do it. And lo and behold, that's what it traded today. In terms of Moderna quickly, I think it traded almost 10 times normal volume today. So if you've enjoyed the ride, I would take some pause from the way Pfizer traded and I'd be taking profits in Moderna. And there's nothing to say that they won't do another offering at some point in the future with the stock close to 100 bucks. Um, but Tim, as, as Meg was making the point, you know, it has other vaccines it was working on. And if you thought betting on mRNA technology was sort of a flyer, was sort of a binary outcome, you've just gotten a little bit more confidence that this could actually work. Yeah, uh, look, uh, two different companies, two different sets of data, two different certainly approaches. And, and what Moderna's done is extraordinary. And, and uh, Guy pointed out, and we don't need to go back into that. So where we were critical is maybe on style points. And, and ultimately, um, if the company is, is truly as close as it sounds like, uh, then, then maybe that was all the right approach. But, but you know, Moderna is, is, you know, granted it pulled back intraday here, um, but it, it, it's clear that 
they, they have been the only one that have been able to uh, be a proper kind of investment conduit for folks that are playing vaccines. And, you know, look at Gilead. Um, still really can't get out of its way in the process. It's also made a major, ma major acquisition. Um, but it, it, if anything, yes, the, the trading the vaccine has been all about trading the downstream. And look at the stocks today that made uh, highs over their intraday highs of Monday. That's the interesting story. It was energy. It was Boeing. It, it was it was copper. It was it was resource stocks. It was yields on, on the bond market ultimately are moving higher. So that's the big story here. Yeah, let's let's turn to the broader markets and discuss some of those moves. Uh, Bonwin, what what did you make of today's action? And, and are we getting long in the tooth on this reopening trade after we've gotten two Mondays of positive vaccine news and seen the markets then go higher? Um, no, not necessarily long in the tooth. Listen, the market is trading on headlines. And as long as we continue to have this robust information coming out out of the healthcare sector, that I think that's literally what's at the forefront of everyone's mind. And we're going to continue to trade in lockstep with that. So the Pfizer news previously, the Moderna news today, I think it all speaks to a heightened level of efficacy of these um, of these sorry, of these vaccines and the the developments around those. So I continue to think that this is going to be a bit of a choppy market. You had the VIX pull back some. So maybe you look to to get some protection in there. But you're going to have to continue to watch the headlines as it pertains to this virus and trade that accordingly. I would throw my hat in the race and echo that the downstream names are definitely the way to play this. I've pointed out the range in IBB. It's tough to pick a renter. Last week it was Pfizer. This week it's Moderna. I think you want a basket of names with the exposure to the overall theme there and played through a thematic uh, strategy. Yeah, and Karen, you've long made the point that it's not the biotech stocks, it's not the pharma stocks that are going to be the vaccine plays. Um, at this point, though, for those types of plays, the reopening trades, the casinos of the world, the airlines, the cruise lines, etc., do you feel better about possibly investing in those sectors given two vaccines with more than 90 percent efficacy? Uh, well, I don't own them, just to, mm -hmm. to cut to the chase. But let me just add one more thing sure. about Moderna, if I could. It's, it's not a self-would-you-rather anything. I think they were the only ones who didn't say, yeah, we're going to price it as cheaply as possible. I think there was a lot of pressure on the Merck, Pfizer, J&J &J type um, to, you know, sort of as a goodwill gesture, price it at, at, almost at marginal cost. And I, rem I remember I was talking about this, Moderna, I think was a little more interested in what is the profit potential. So that's probably why their stock outperformed, as well as the unbelievably great data, of course. But anyway, so going back to the travel question, here's the thing, though. These stocks, while there's momentum because of the vaccine and there is a light at the end of the tunnel, they are levitating because, remember, their balance sheets have exploded. They've raised so much debt to get to the other side, and hopefully they will, because a lot of jobs rely on that. But with the enterprise value as big as they are, I'm going to let that, let that trade go by. Can, can we sort of fade stimulus away into the background guy? Now that we have these two very positive data points and we know that there is another side that by the end of the year, 20 million Americans will be vaccinated with either a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, that we can feel better about the economy because we know there's an endpoint. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, the general, and for those folks who don't know the general, that Jeff would be Mills. Jeff Mills, who's no doubt watching right now. He actually pointed out that actually, no, to answer that question, now more than ever is when you should need the stimulus because there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you're not chasing. You know, you give people a bridge, you give them hope and say, hey, 
by the summer we're going to get there in terms of the vaccine, but get us from here to there. Uh, I think now more than ever, stimulus is important. When he tweeted that, I found myself nodding my head. And then, of course, I hearken back to the great Robert Frost. Uh, the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. There are miles to go, but if we get that stimulus deal, it will get us to the other side of the woods, Mel. What happens to the stock market and the miles to go, Tim? I mean, the economy can, can just be an absolute disaster and stocks may still go higher. Right? That's a sad fact. Well, you know, valuations, uh, as as Karen's alluding to, and I think, you know, I don't know, I, I, I missed that English late class. So, you know, you have a case where uh, as we start to look to 2021 into 22, valuations get very expensive. Um, what you what you're seeing is that the recovery stocks, but early stage recovery in, in the form of resources, even in the form of banks, which we now, you know, we're going to talk about this, this, this. M&A transaction. But I'll just simply say, to the extent that there have been companies that were overly cautious uh, in terms of their outlook, I think unwinding some of that is very appropriate. Uh, but that we're going to find ourselves in a place. Uh, but I don't think it's 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 really unless there's a change in Fed policy until the middle part of next year. In, in the short run, uh, yes, we've given stocks a mulligan to 2022. And I still think there's a, a vast part of the industrial uh, and call it the 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 transport and, and even the, the late cyclical part of the investment profile that I think is very investable still. Uh, and I don't think valuation really matters. I really don't. I, I think until yields normalize, equities can trade above their skis. All right. Well, stocks may be hitting record highs, but our next guest says now is the time to be cautious. Let's bring in Jonathan Golub, chief U.S. equity strategist at Credit Suisse. Jonathan, great to have you. Um, I don't know if you want to quote, quote Frost or Emerson or another literary great, um, but why, why, do you, why should we be cautious? I mean, as Tim had pointed out, investors are willing to just give stocks a pass when it comes to earnings. So what does it matter at this point? We've got two great vaccine data points. We see, we see the other side now. Well, first of all, the question is time frame. So am I optimistic? Yes. Is this great news in terms of these announcements? Yes. They're really more a big deal in terms of, you know, getting us through this, this process of this pandemic, but they're not going to have a major impact on the economy in 2021. Those of us who are watching or, or, or on, you know, on air, we're probably not going to all have a vaccine until sometime in the middle of, of next year. So yeah, we could use some stimulus to get us through June or the summer, but in the, in the short run and markets respond to the short run, we're facing rising cases. So if you're a hedge fund and you have a two or three month um, window, I think that there's some risk here. If you are a an individual investing or a, or a portfolio manager with a two-year, one-year horizon, I'd be buying this like crazy, but it really depends on your time frame. So, I mean, more immediately, Jonathan, are you worried about Thanksgiving and the two weeks after Thanksgiving where we might see cases spike as a result of, of various gatherings and celebrations? Yeah, I, I actually think the thing I'm really scared about is Christmas. And it's, it's that if we, I mean, we had 25,000 cases at the beginning of September, we had over 160,000 cases on Saturday. We're doubling the number of cases every three and a half weeks. And if, we're, and if we go into this super spreader of Thanksgiving, the real risk is that government officials say we're closing it down and you can't afford to have that happen right before you're going into the Christmas shopping season. It would be really devastating for the economy and the companies that get really beaten up if we start seeing shutdowns in late November and into December. It's your local retailer. It's your local restaurant. Those are the guys who are most under pressure. 
that's a thing that has me concerned. We're also going to see on the political front in the next few weeks more clarity on what the president, what Biden's cabinet looks like. And the market is going to be assessing that. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be overly concerning. But if it's a very progressive looking cabinet, there are going to be some on Wall Street are going to be quite uneasy. Jonathan, great to get your thoughts as always. Thank you. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse. Bonwin, are you worried about the consumer? Uh, sure, I've been worried about the consumer, but I, I do want to point out a, a point that Jonathan made in terms of the time horizon here. He brings up a great point. If you're, if you're thinking about so many of the market participants or the large market participants are institutional in nature and you have year in marks, that is certainly something to keep at the forefront of your mind. But I think the consumer has been stretched for some time. I understand that unemployment rates have been falling and savings rates have have. Um, have been uh, uh, nudging higher and higher. However, this economy is one that is leveraged to the consumer that is typically spending with debt. That is definitely something that I'm looking at with concern. All right, Berkshire Hathaway making some pretty interesting moves in its portfolio for the latest quarter. Leslie Pickers got all the details. Hey, Les. Hey, Melissa. Interesting indeed. We're seeing a thematic rotation out of bank stocks into pharma during the quarter. Let's start with the new positions in the pharma sector. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway taking new stakes in AbbVie, Merck, and Bristol Myers Squibb. Each of those positions worth about $2 billion as of the end of September. Warren Buffett's firm also disclosing a smaller position in Pfizer worth about $136 million at quarter end and maintaining nine-digit holdings in Teva and Biogen. On the financial side, we're seeing a continued reduction in bank names by Berkshire Hathaway. The firm almost selling out of J.P. Morgan entirely, paring back its stake by 96 percent to hold just under $100 million worth of stock. Also sizable reductions in M&T and PNC as well. Berkshire Hathaway providing interim filings on Wells Fargo and B of A in August and showing a slight decrease in positions since then in each of those names. Interestingly, there was no change in the firm's nearly $5 billion stake in U.S. Bank Corp. And speaking of multi-billion dollar stakes, I know we love to talk about Apple here. Berkshire Hathaway in Q3 sold about $4 billion worth of Apple stake at today's price, although that was a pairing back of less than 4%, Melissa. All right. So still a sizable position. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Um, Karen, what stood out to you? I mean, the move in banks seems pretty notable, especially considering the uh, run in banks uh, since the end of the third quarter, which is when the filing was effective. Right. So we don't know at what time during the third quarter they did that. But the bank run since September 30 has been enormous. So they missed that, although it seems over the last few quarters that they've just made a strategic choice to severely curtail their bank exposure. So I don't know that it was so price generated as much as just, all right, we're going to be out of the banks. We saw it with Wells Fargo. So you know, I love J.P. Morgan. I love Jamie Dimon. I'm not going to sell uh, on that news at all. Um, we'll see. Might trade down a little bit. But I think that sort of people aren't looking at Warren Buffett as the bank um, oracle, I think, anymore because of that decision to sell out. All right. Coming prior up. Prior to now. Right. Coming up, Airbnb taking a big step on its road to going public. But will the stock see the first day pop of so many of the year's other IPOs? And later, the urge to merge or more bank deals ahead will be joined by one top banking analyst who says you can expect just that. Get your notebook and pencil ready because he's naming names in the financial space. Fast Money's back in two.
The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Breaking news on Tesla. Phil has got the details. Phil. Uh, Melissa, the S&P 500 is going to be adding Tesla to the, the index. This is a move that many expected uh, after the company posted a profit in the second quarter, but now they're doing it following a Tesla reporting a profit in the third quarter. So now you have Tesla joining the S&P 500, a move that many expected uh, about three months ago, but now they're going to be uh, included, and this is why you have a stock that's up 7% after hours. Not an unexpected inclusion, uh, but one that people were expecting a while ago. A while ago, Now that it's happening, you're starting to see a little bit of that payback in terms of the shares moving higher after hours. Melissa? Wow. Finally, the wait is over. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, um, this is one reason why the stock had ramped up, uh, I believe it was all over the summer or so. We should note that $11.2 billion was indexed or benchmarked to the S&P 500. Of that total, less than half, about $4.6 trillion is actually index funds. So they will have to buy Tesla shares. And that is in part fueling this move that we're seeing in the after hour session, although still the stock is short of its all time high, which is somewhere above 500 bucks. Guy, what do you make of this, especially for people who got in? I mean, this was so long expected and finally it's here. Yeah, I feel like we were talking about this in the spring. Listen, great for Tesla, a company that two years ago, I think, was you know, within a week or so of, of maybe going in an entirely different direction. And we talked about then as well. You know, one thing I've said for a while, and again, I want to emphasize this, I'm not some raging Tesla bull. I've been wrong as many times as I've been right. But th- there have been a number of things that made you stay with the stock, not least of which was back in May when the stock was trading at an all-time high, I believe May 1st, around $700 pre-split at the time. And Elon Musk said, I'm paraphrasing, the stock is too expensive and the sell-off lasted for a day. You know, you've seen things like that now many times over over the last five or six months. Every time the stock goes down, it's been a reason to buy it. And my sense is we take out that 502 level that we, we made an all-time high of a few months ago rather quickly. Stock is up more than 10 percent right now. Bonowin, for a Tesla investor who has endured volatility, does this sort of dampen that, do you think? with the being included in the S&P 500? Uh, sure, there should be a, a slight vol dampening effect, um, particularly as you have indexing and rebalancing. And, and you'd expect those options to trade with a little bit more liquidity. In terms of risk to the upside or downside, I, I really think a lot of this has been priced in despite the 10% move here. We've had a massive run up. If you've been long, I, I think you take some chips off the table, but that's generally my disposition on anything that has run up. Uh, the way that Tesla or like names have. Yeah. Karen, your thoughts? 
Well, what did you say the math was again on how many the trillions in index and how much they have to buy? 11.2 trillion is indexed or benchmarked. But of that total, 4.6 trillion is indexed, implying that those funds would have to buy. Uh huh. I don't know how much that would be of Tesla. Of Tesla shares. I, mean, I understand, yeah. of course, why it's up, um, but I wouldn't. I would neither buy it or sell it on its inclusion or not inclusion in the S and P. Um, you know, I think this will. Uh, this to me is not a catalyst. Their earnings, their products—that's a catalyst. Think of how far the conversation has come when it comes to this company, though, Tim. I mean, <laughs> from disastrous conference yeah. calls to Elon Musk smoking a blunt on the Joe Rogan podcast, right, to the crazy tweets. And, all, and now, now it's in the big boys club. I mean, it's, it's in the S&P 500. Here we are, 4.55 a share. Yeah, to, to, to a you know, funding uh, statement as well. And, and then Elon Musk a couple Secured. weeks ago saying uh, we were within a month of bankruptcy, you know, something along those lines. So I'll, I'll leave that for people to quote exactly. But it, it, look, it's been extraordinary. And, and I think it, it's, uh, it's very interesting to see where the competitive landscape has also become more intense. And on some level, um, all of the other EV plays, uh, in some sense, show a brighter light on Tesla uh, and actually helped. And now we have a dynamic where you have Volkswagen uh, and GM and Ford have certainly been in the news over the last month uh, talking about their story. I still think with Tesla, profitability is very important to get back to valuation issues. If the balance sheet is not in question, and it's not. And again, that's, that's how this story has changed dramatically. Um, but you know, the last couple of quarters have been marked by EV credits being the lion's share or the only reasons for profitability at a time when the landscape gets more competitive. Do you and they question S and P's judgment the then? That indicated. Do you think? Do you think that S and P should have? Do you think S and P should have rethought or, or thought about that? That that? I don't think the S and P. No. Do they care? I don't think should the S and getting into the fine print. I, I don't think they're there to make that assessment. They're there to, to, to there's, a, there's a technical dynamic of profitability that allows inclusion, and a company this large has to be in there if it, makes, if it clears the hurdle. Um, but I think there are people that are, are questioning, you know, how, how sustainable, um, how legitimate is, is this profitability? And, you know, um, I, I don't think S&P is making that assessment. They, and, and that's why this news um, is an exciting day for shareholders and something that uh, I do believe has been priced in. But, but clearly a 10 percent move tells you uh, there's a pop in the stock which, which loves Momo moments. And this is one of them. Should we guy discount the profitable quarters for Tesla because it got there with the help of EV credits? Or is that just part of the game? That's part of their business at this point. Tim, that's part of the business. Tim makes a good point. I mean, I don't think S&P 500 is looking in the weeds. I mean, part of the criteria, I think, is five quarters of profitability. I might be wrong in terms of S&P inclusion, but it's something like that. And they, they were able to get over that bar. So, again, good, good for Tesla. And the, and the way they did it, I guess, is not necessarily matters for S&P. And quite frankly, uh, for market participants, they haven't cared either. It's one of those things. This is not meant to be glib, but valuations don't matter until they do. Well, guess what? Value, and Tim made this point earlier. Valuations clearly don't matter in the current environment that we find ourselves in. Uh, but is again, going back to Robert Frost, nothing stays gold forever there, Mel. You have a quote for every segment, Guy. It is amazing. Pony. Um, Pony the, boy. the inclusion, by the way, to the S&P 500 is effective the 21st of December. Let's get to a developing story on Airbnb's long-awaited public offering. Deirdre Bosa's got all the details. Deirdre. 
Hey, Melissa, I'm waiting for Guy's quote or lyric to this portion, too. I'm still digging through the S1, but let me give you what I have so far, starting with the financials. No surprise here. The pandemic has hurt business this year a lot. Gross bookings plunged by more than 70 percent in April year over year. They have recovered substantially, but they are still down on an annual basis. For the first nine months of 2020, $700 million net loss on $2.5 billion in revenue versus a net loss of $322 million on $3.7 billion in rev last year. The recovery, though, combined with deep cost cutting, that led Airbnb to swing to a profit in the most recent quarter. On an adjusted basic basis, guys, the startup was actually profitable in 2017 and 2018. So even ahead of the pandemic, we should note it did start losing money. That reflects Airbnb's push beyond its core into hotels and real estate, which it has since scaled back this year. Now, there is a multi-class structure with four series of common stock. No surprise there either. It's three co-founders, including Brian Chesky, hold less than 50 percent of voting power. Sequoia, Silver Lake and DST hold the rest. In terms of risk factors, COVID is listed first. Regulation and competition are among others. Key question, Melissa, how do you price this company? As I look through this prospectus, the financials are all over the place because of the pandemic. Pre-COVID, business was strong, but not perfect. We're seeing a recovery now. So how do investors actually price this thing? Back right. to you. Debo, thank you. Deidre Bosa with the latest of Airbnb's filing. Um, what kind of market environment, Bonoan, do you think Airbnb is walking into? Is it a market environment where investors want growth or they don't? I mean, they want value these days. So... How does that work out for Airbnb? I think if you look at any time series, you've seen that investors continue to pay for growth. And you've seen that in the IPO environment that we've seen in other tech names. And I think Airbnb wants a piece of that, right? As, as we've mentioned, the, the financials have been a bit volatile. There's a need to kind of source liquidity here and, and tap a market that is clearly primed um, to, to digest these type of deals. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Uh Uh-oh. A top chartist says, watch out for falling knives in the tech trade. How to brace for protection ahead. And later, price check in aisle three as Walmart shares hit a new high. Stick around to find out what options traders are expecting when the retailer reports earnings tomorrow. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tech stocks catching a bit today, but still lagging the broader market with the Nasdaq closing up just under a percent. Our next guest warns there could be a bigger pullback looming for some of the hottest names in this space. 
Let's go off the charts with the legendary Louise Yamada of Louise Yamada Technical Research Advisors. Louise, it is a pleasure. It is an honor for you to join us. We, we quote you many times on this show. So I'm really, really uh, curious to hear what you have to say about tech here. You're very kind, Melissa. Well, the, we've had a volatile three or four months, and technology has really been uh, more or less going sideways for the FANG stocks in particular. And uh, we got a little concerned that the most important thing would be support levels. And recognizing that this isn't 2000 when there were no earnings. We have earnings with these stocks. Um, but... Uh, they could be off 20% and still be within an uptrend. And some of them are already off 20%. The question is, are they going to break the support of these sideways consolidations or will they be able to lift? Google, of course, has already lifted. So we have, uh, we have three stocks here today. Amazon, I think, is the first one. Um, I'm not seeing it. It, it. it may be coming up, but I'm not seeing it. But in any event... It's, you can see the sideways action. We have negative momentum on that on that chart, and it's already been down 18%. So as long as it holds above 2,900, and this is the critical support level, uh, then maybe it just simply continues to consolidate further, and maybe we'll see a resolution on the upside. But the point is that we've more or less been warning about support levels and suggesting we let the upside take care of itself. The next chart that I believe you have is Microsoft and um, support there is 195, but you can see also it's been going sideways for quite some time with uh, lower highs and it's been down 15%. Uh, I think the most vulnerable of these stocks is Netflix, uh, which has not only a negative momentum on a weekly basis, but also a negative divergence on a monthly. So support for Netflix is 470, already off 20% and keeps bouncing and going down another 20% within the sideways consolidation. So um, that's our concern here. Today, I must say, was an impressive day and not all tech stocks are looking vulnerable, but these have been ones that we have been concerned about. Louise, at what point do you say they are consolidating and building a base as opposed to threatening to break well, the proof, support? The proof, of, the proof of that would be breaking out through the upper level of these consolidations. So basically, these are critical support levels. As long as they hold, we continue to define it as a consolidation. And if at some point down the road, they lift up through the entire consolidation, then we then we become more constructive once again. Google, for instance, is one of them has already broken out to the upside. Netflix looks a little bit more vulnerable to me. Um, and, and last question, Louise, because we quote you, and I, I think that we misquote you, but the sentiment is there when it comes to your saying the longer the base, the higher in space. Is that is that the saying? Are we getting that right? Yes, absolutely. The bigger the base, the higher in space, the bigger the top, the bigger the drop. And the bigger the drop, the longer the need for repair. And I think what we're seeing is we're getting excited about some of the underlying broadening that's taking place is that maybe the repair process is beginning for some mm. of these other stocks that have been in bear markets. I could throw out Triple M as one that's looking interesting. But you have quite a few industrials that are starting to break out, and that's heartwarming. 
Uh, we have felt that the market has been a little bit mixed up itself and not sure, you know, as a discounting mechanism, what's coming six months down the road. <laughs> right. but maybe with these two vaccines, we have a better picture. Okay. Louise, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Melissa. Louise Yamada, Louise Yamada, technical research. I feel like um, embroidering that saying, although it's long, on a sampler and giving that out for Christmas, Guy. I know you would appreciate one. Can I tell you, I, I dig, you wanted an Emerson quote before. Every great artist was at first an amateur, and Louise is a great artist, and she is not an amateur. And the fact that she quotes Spinal Tap on our show when she comes on is fantastic. I share her concerns, although she mentioned that Google is an outlier mm-hmm. or Alphabet, and I would agree with that. I could, you can make an argument that Alphabet is cheaper now than it was a week and a half or two weeks ago when they reported earnings. So good for Louise. Great to have her on the show. She is an OG, as the kids say. Absolutely. Coming up, President-elect Joe Biden starting to lay out his economic agenda today. But when will we hear about his pick for Treasury Secretary? We look at some of the contenders next. Plus, an $11.6 billion deal in the banking sector. Are more deals ahead in the space? We'll dig into that straight ahead. Much more Fast Money coming up. Welcome back to Fast Money. President-elect Joe Biden sitting down via Zoom with major CEOs and labor leaders today, GM CEO Mary Barra, Microsoft President CEO Satya Nadella, and AFL-CIO leader Richard Trumka were among those on the call discussing the path toward economic recovery. Meantime, at the forefront for many investors is who Biden will pick as his new Treasury Secretary. Eamon Javers has got the latest and a look at some of the contenders. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, the Biden team is not really tipping their hand just yet as to who is on the short list. They're telling me that it's more of a December thing than a November thing in, in terms of the economic team being publicly announced. So behind the scenes, there's a lot of speculation. And of course, Washington is full of rumors and gossip, but that's all it is right now. Let's take a look at some of these names, though, that everybody in Washington is talking about as a potential next Treasury Secretary. I think Lael Brainerd uh, is the one at the top of everybody's list. She's a Fed governor now, uh, and she's somebody that uh, a lot of people think could be a likely Treasury Secretary pick for the Biden team. But, uh, of course, we don't know that for sure. There might be some drawbacks there. Elizabeth Warren is another one uh, that we've been talking about. That's seen now as a little bit less likely uh, for the Biden team in terms of a pick uh, moving forward, partly because it would pull a a prominent Democrat out of the Senate at a time when the Senate is very narrowly contested between Democrats and Republicans. Also in the mix, Sarah Bloom Raskin. She's a former Deputy Treasury secretary, well-known in Washington uh, from her Obama administration days. Janet Yellen is a name that has come up in recent weeks uh, and days. And that's an interesting one because obviously uh, from her role at the Fed, she is so well-known on a global financial stage and and a lot of experience there. So that's an interesting potential pick, uh, as is Raphael Bostic, the Atlanta Fed president, uh, somebody who is said to be in the mix as well. So a lot of names A lot of speculation, uh, no hard and fast facts just yet, Melissa, but a lot of choices here for this incoming Biden team. December's around the corner, so I guess we'll have to wait for it. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers in Washington. A lot of candidates out there, Karen, um, in terms of your investment in banks, will it matter in terms of how you view the sector, who is Treasury Secretary? Uh, Well, I think Warren would probably be seen as the least friendly to banks of that group. Um, I don't know that Lyle Brainerd is so overly friendly to banks either. I'm not sure. 
But uh, to me, I think the, what happens in the Senate is really going to be important for the banks. So if it stays GOP controlled, then I think the banks will be shielded from any really meaningful regulation. All right. Um, we Not ha- regulation in general, changes to regulations. Right. Uh, we have a correction on Berkshire Hathaway's stake in Bank of America. Earlier, we said it was down slightly from an August filing. It is actually unchanged from that interim filing and up around 9% from the end of June. So we just wanted to point that out. Coming up, PNC locking one of the biggest bank mergers since the financial crisis. We'll tell you what the deal means for the rest of the regional bank space. Plus, Walmart surging to a fresh all-time high today. And options traders are betting the stock will rack up even more gains when it reports earnings tomorrow. We'll tell you why. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. BBVA has been on the, the, the top of our kind of hit list for the last probably five years as we look at the markets they operate in and, and the, the, the complementary nature of, of those markets to what we do. That was PNC Financial Services CEO earlier today on Squawk in the Street talking about the $11.6 billion deal to buy the U.S. operations of the Spanish bank BBVA. For more on what is ahead for the regionals, let's bring in Gerard Cassidy. He is head of U.S. Bank Strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Gerard, great to have you with us. I feel like banks are, have the same problem as retailers. They, too many banks out there, too many stores, too many banks. We're overbanked right now. So consolidation has to happen? I, I think you're right, Melissa. When you take a look at the banking industry in the United States, it's been a consolidation trend that's been going on for over 30 years. Back in the 1980s, we had over 14,000 banks in this country. Today, we're down to about 5,000. So I think the consolidation will continue. And you're right. We're still overbanked, and we expect to see economies of scale drive the merger trends over the next 12 to 24 months. The number of banks that can actually do deals, though, Gerard, I mean, you, it can't be any of the large ones because they've got too many deposits at this point. So how do you take a look at and, and how do you assess possible targets and possible acquirers? It's a really good question because when you look back over the last, let's say, two to three years, it's been mostly smaller banks that have been combining and creating banks of sizes between a billion and five billion in assets. And you're absolutely right. When you look at our top three banks in the United States, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan and Bank America, their deposit market shares are all over 10 percent, which prohibits them from buying a depository. City technically could buy, but I don't think they'd be permitted to because they are a global um, systemically important bank. I don't think the regulators would allow it. That being said, though, we have a number of regional banks that could actually do mergers. You might recall the big merger last year was the BBT SunTrust deal, mm-hmm. which created true. So I anticipate we'll probably see more big regional bank mergers like that deal, as well as the traditional deals that you saw today with PNC acquiring another bank, which is in this case BBVA, the U.S. subsidiary of the Spanish bank. Hey, Gerard, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. And you're getting to whether it's merger or acquire in this case. Um, what I heard both sides of the ledger today was the valuation they paid uh, in an environment where there is consolidation, where there are strong balance sheets, complementary footprints. Um, talk about valuation for banks like this. And did you like the price that PNC paid at one point three, four or so times tangible book? When you look at the price, it's, a, it's an interesting question, Tim, because the prices over the last 20 years have varied quite a bit. We've seen much higher prices than what you saw today. But then in the financial crisis, you saw really fire sale prices and PNC 
probably had the deal of the century with the national city deal when they did that transaction in 2008. So today's price was a reasonable price. One metric that we look at in addition to the 1.34% of tangible book value is what we refer to as the deposit premium. And that came in at around 3.7%, which is actually on the low side. So the pricing was um, reasonable. It wasn't super cheap, but it certainly wasn't overpaying for this franchise, similar to what we've seen in the past for some deals. All right, Gerard, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Always good to see you. Thank you, Melissa. Gerard Cassidy. Um, valuation, that's an important point here, Guy, at this point in time, after the massive run, which we alluded to at the top of the show, up 25% for the KRE in just the past month. Where are we on valuation? I still think you can go higher. I mean, the big cap banks, and we've talked about this, it's not that I'm some raging bank bull, but, you know, when Citi traded down to, I think, 59% of tangible book when it was trading $41, we said, I think, across the board, that this is 08 valuations, it's too cheap. I think City can go to $57, which is still only 80% of tangible book, and then it starts to make sense in terms of getting out of position. All right, coming up, shopping for gains. Walmart on deck to report earnings tomorrow, and options traders are betting the retailers heading to new highs on the results after setting a new record high today. We'll break down the action right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Walmart hitting a fresh all-time high today. The retail giant reporting earnings tomorrow, and traders in the options market are betting that the gains are nowhere near over. Bonowin's got the action. Take it away, Bonowin. Looking ahead to tomorrow, you can see that calls outpace puts three times to one. And if you take a step forward, you see that options are implying a 4% move in either direction between now and Friday. Compare that to just roughly over a 1% move over the last four quarters of earnings. And I want to point out 15,000, 15,000 of the No 155 calls traded about 220. But what's jumped out to me is that a small portion of that was spread against the No 20, No 27th 155 call spread that traded for 40 cents. They're actually betting that the stock will remain slightly muted up until this week and then have a move higher next week, only spinning a quarter of a percent to protect your move to the upside, buying yourself a week of time. That jumped out to me. Thank you for that, Bono and Eisen. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, we've got your final trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, I'm, I'm always in with the icebreaker, but I'm particularly in on Walmart. Again, Walmart plus 10 million subs. I think the multiple is too cheap for an e-commerce story. Walmart. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, so against my value things, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, I have short IGV, which is the software tech ETF. Bonoin Eisen, a.k.a. Icebreaker. Do yourself a favor, buy insurance when it's cheap, not when you're in a panic. VIX approaching that $20 level, add some volatility to the portfolio. Guy Dami. Love the icebreaker. Also like U.S. Bank Corp. Comes out USB, Mel. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. For more, meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. 
But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.